0: Join me, your host, Robert Randall, as we delve into biblical instrumentation and music history to discover the sounds behind the words of our Savior, Yeshua Messiah. Zorim Tovim, Mishpacha HaYeshua Messiah, good afternoon, body in Christ. It is I, uh, your host, Robert Randall, coming to you from the beautiful Rocky Mountains of Colorado this Sunday afternoon. Today, we're going to be examining an earlier form of music, Babylonian music. Yes, that's right. Not Greek, not Hebrew. I, I was curious about the dig that was mentioned in the harp documentary I listened to a couple weeks ago about the five lyres that were found, two of them which were encased in silver, and... So I did some digging, and I found Richard Dumbrill's testimony, who has done a reconstruction of one of the silver lyres of Ur of the Chaldees. Also, musician Peter Pringle has done the same. You can look those up on your own, but today I thought this would be part uh, part one of a two-part series on ancient Babylonian reconstruction of music, which changed the musical system from seven notes to nine, as you will hear. So, Father in heaven, we pray that all discernment and Uh, would be given to us from your Holy Spirit. We pray that all glory and truth would manifest through this to edify the body, that all pagan names that are mentioned of these false Babylonian deities and all false gematria associated within the science of music would be null and void. Father, knowing that you are the creator of all things, and to you we give all the glory, because you are our sustainer, you are our redeemer, our provider, you are our king. You are the creator of the universe, and you are the one who has given us the sounds of music through J-Ball. And so we thank you, Father, for this opportunity. In Yeshua HaMashiach's name, amen.
1: There were about five lies which were unearthed in 1929, in the, the summer, of, in the winter, sorry, of 1929, by Sir Leonard Woolley who was conducting an excavation there in, uh, in southern Iraq, along with the University of, of uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, uh, they discovered a great death pit, rural tombs and so forth. And uh, there were five lies laying there. They had been crushed by the earth because unlike with ancient Egypt, the uh, tombs were not in chambers. Uh, people and their uh, object were simply buried. Sometimes bodies were in special containers made of, of stone. Sometimes it was made of pottery. And sometimes it was simply let uh, down, covered with, with the ground, with the soil. So the instruments were not in a very good nick, obviously. They, were, they had been crushed by tons of earth because these tombs were really quite deep. And uh, they are dated about 2600 BC. So the only instruments which were left almost uh, uh, um, in their entirety, were two of these which were covered with silver. And uh, because they were covered with silver and of course they were crushed, it was possible to uh, lift them off the ground very carefully. Uh, And prior, they had been covered with wax, so to facilitate the lifting. And then once they were away, they could be transported to the British Museum. And then at the museum, uh, they were carefully cleaned up, and uh, this silver eye, which was uh, uh, which stayed at the British Museum, was then examined. Uh, 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 drawings were made of it uh, very carefully, and then after some years, it was decided, uh, that was in the sixties, that it should be reconstructed. So therefore, uh, there was a team led by Podro and they started to lift off all the bits of silver, numbered them, uh, uh, put them aside, then decided on the major size and volume of the structure, which had been of wood, and made a a plastic uh, model of it on which they glued back each of the little silver bits in order to reconstruct the instrument. Organological issues were the most important to start with, in that when the silver which had corroded immensely, it was taken off the, the uh, wax uh, uh, material which preserved them uh, after the excavation and prior to the reconstruction. The silver was then um, placed in special kilns in order that the corrosion would uh, disappear, leaving uh, proper silver. But this uh, way of, of dealing with the silver had very bad results in the sense that silver became very elastic, and didn't want to, say, to stay uh, still. It always curved like crisps. So there were many methods which were devised, different types of glue, to see if they, the silver would finally stick onto the plastic. And it was a hell of a job. It took months before the uh, uh, bits of silver uh, managed to fit on the on the instrument. But so, also there were other issues. In, in the 60s, the purpose of reconstructing a musical instrument was more uh, regarding its aspect than its value as a musical instrument. So, therefore, many, many of the impo- important details of its structure were got rid of to the profit of how the instrument looked, and uh, the m- many artistic licences regarding this reconstruction was an absolute disaster. And actually, the instrument as it stands in the British Museum is is has no value of organology. For anybody simply looking at it. What was important is all the notes which I have read, uh, these are many, many notes of reconstruction, and all the origin drawings. But the instrument as it stands has got no organological value whatsoever. It is a total mess. Uh, very sad. This is why I decided to, to reconstruct it. <coughs> and the, the first, most important thing is that uh, Woolley noted that when he lifted the soundboard of the instrument, or rather the soundbox, is that both sides had been crushed once against the other. And when these two layers were separated, it was, uh, 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 they revealed that there was only a very thin layer of dust between the two plates of silver. And this was so extremely important because it meant that there was, the silver was not glued or positioned on a support which might have been wood, which could have been leather, whatever. Uh, it simply meant that the soundboards, the front one and the back one, were indeed made of silver, and that the silver was about uh, 40% of a millimetre, for hundreds of a millimetre. This was so incredibly important, because it's the first time in the history of musical instruments that we have soundboards in silver. Uh, we thought that uh, prior to this, we thought that mainly they were made of wood. That they were made of leather, because uh, and mainly of leather, of raw hide rather more than leather, because it's a material which, when dries, is extremely strong and doesn't suffer from variations in the humidity levels in the atmosphere. So, totally suitable for southern Iraq. Wood is less appropriate because, firstly. Uh, they would have needed to have special saws to, to saw uh, a plate of wood, a plank of wood, which was, would have been only 1 mm 0.5 in thickness. And then they would have to glue the uh, uh, planks one against the other to finally manage to make a, a full soundboard. And I do not believe that this was possible at that time because they didn't have the proper equipment. That secondly, had they managed to have the technology to, uh, to build a soundboard in this way, then it would have cracked all the time. Because in southern Iraq, you have levels of hygrometry, which can be very high at certain times of the year. And suddenly it can become, ex- the, the, dr- the, the climate dries suddenly, and you can have just as little as 5% hygrometry. So between saturation of humidity in the air to 5%, it is absolutely uh, um, impossible uh, to have a plant which remains on split. So this proposal is not a valid one. My methodology with this is simply to do to, to the replication of the instrument without having any kind of inspiration from any form of texts because I wanted to remain absolutely true to the quality of the original uh, archaeological drawings. That was it. So I built the instrument, and we made with Miriam Masutu, who is currently doing a postdoctoral research with me at the museum. We started to make calculations with regard what would be the ideal a string uh, not length, because the length is defined by the shape of the instrument. So we knew that the strings average about eighty centimeters in length. Uh, and of course, because of the structure, the strings were about all about the same length because of the trapezoidal form of the instrument, with variations between only seventy-six to eighty-four, so an average of eighty uh, 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 or about eighty. So we defined the um, uh, the mass of the strings and the tension they would have had at the time, and the tension was and the mass was uh, uh, made in relation. To the materials that they would have used, so we know that a string in uh, um, is sa in Sumerian, that's the name for a string, which is bitnu in Akkadian, and we know that sa and bitnu is also a term to this to to which means gut or tendon. But with regard to a musical instrument, we think that the gut was more appropriate we know that in at the time in, in in Sumer in southern iraq they would have used indiscriminately guts of any f- kinds of animals the bull the cow the deer the fallow deer lambs rams uh, uh, and pigs uh, because we remember that uh, judaism doesn't exist yet and therefore pigs okay and uh, why not cats you know chickens whatever they would have used they, they use it because guts with all animals, including the human variety, have got extremely good qualities. It's a material which can be used as a sheath for a knife, which can can have so many, you can sew with it, so leather bits in it, you can make shoes with it. And of course, when you twist a gut, you simply use it as a string. And of course, if the string is not thick enough, you take two lengths of gut and you twist them together. Why not three, four, and five? You know, as long as you obtain a proper result. So, our calculations um, on this instrument, uh, the result of these calculations, uh, uh, meant that it was pig's gut that was used, and that the the uh, string at the treble would have consisted in only one gut twisted on itself, and the first gut, the the the, base, the the upper base, the, the lower base string of it, would have been four uh, guts twisted together. And it, this was what the mathematics of it gave us. So this was interesting, so we, we a string is as it best when it is about uh, only 20% away from the breaking point, that is, you pull a string and it is just about to break, it is then that it sounds to its best. So having done this with the strings and having achieved a, a, a good result, that is that the the sound was good, the the tension of the string was good, the pressure on it was good, so therefore we had a playable set of strings, consisting of pigs, guns as like I said, one, two, four lensed together. I decided to measure what they gave us in, in Hertz. That is, hertz are simply units of, of frequency. And to my greatest amazement, the central note gave 294 hertz, which is D. And what do we have in ancient texts, a text called nu 32? The the uh, uh, text implies that indeed the, the, the instrument uh, uh, which is the strings of the instrument which are listed on this tablet indicate very clearly and without any dispute that the central note, string, note 5, was indeed a D. So there the textual evidence confirm the validity of the replication of the instrument, the validity of the organology. So this is absolutely fantastic. It proved that what we had done by empiricism was confirmed indeed by the textual evidence. The D is uh, reached as a, a, a note. It could be a C-sharp. No, it cannot be now because we know it was 294 hertz, And in, in our modern scale, uh, uh, 294 hertz is a D when the A is 440 Hz. Hertz. Hertz. So there's absolutely no problem. It is a D full stop. But what I mean, the original Nebitnu 32 text it lists strings in this way. It says it in both Sumerian and Akkadian. It's a bilingual text, but I will not bother you with this. I will simply say it in English. The first string is called first string. We have second string, third thin string, fourth string created by the god Ea. Ea was the god of wisdom, music, and balance. Uh, then we have the fifth string, then we've got a fourth string of the behind, third string of the behind, second string of the behind, and behind string. For a long time many scholars couldn't see the significance of having a third thin string. For any musicologist it's quite obvious, a third thin string, uh, being thin by its definition, uh, implies that it isn't the treble of the instrument. And also it implies that it is uh, uh, possibly a string which might be tuned in different ways because it had it has an adjective attached to it. And then we have the next string, the fourth string, which is has been created by the god Ea. And this means that this fourth string would have been placed there in order to correct some imperfection in a system. This is implied in it. And when we Uh, read the text carefully, we realise that the central note, the note of string 5, has to be a D, and that the two opposites are one fifth apart, and must be an A at the treble, and must be an A at the bass. And then you tune up a fourth from the bass towards the treble, and then a fourth down from the treble's note, two down, and so forth, and you finally obtain a remarkable a uh, pentatonic uh, structure, and then you complement it to obtain a diatonic, any structure that is a structure with nine notes. And because of the symmetry which was um, so important in Sumerian times, uh, the central note has to be a D in order to generate the symmetry, with the third note and the fourth note working uh, in relation to their opposite in the base. As the tritonic note being corrected by the fourth, and this is where resides the interesting thing about this uh, a listing of notes. The Sumerians used a system of mathematics which was the 6 system, which uh, had been prior to this the base six system. The numbers initially were six, five, four, three, and then they decided for more accuracy in the uh, uh, measures, it was good to decimalize it. So it became 60, 50, 40, and 30. Now, the central note uh, uh, would have been 60, which was the number by which the top god Anu was named. Anu was the god 60 and the god of 1, because of course in 6 mathematics, 60 equals to 1, because when you arrive at 60, the 60 becomes the 1, and so forth. The the god which was the god ar, which is the most important, is the god of forty. And this forty indicates that, of course, if you got 60, 50, which is the god sin, you have a, this is the ratio of a minor third, fifty to forty. This is a major third. So therefore, you have two thirds, bringing uh, two fifths, and the ratio of ar to thirty is a fourth. So therefore the cosmology of the gods is present in the notes and they define the structure the fundamental structure of the scale because once you have a fourth and you've got a fifth you subtract the fourth from the fifth and you've got the tone when you've got a third a minor third and you have its reciprocal it becomes a major sixth, and a major third because of minor six so the ratios 60, 50, 40, and 30 contain all the essential numbers to create a sexagesimal uh, system of music. And this was known about 5,000 years ago. Well, this instrument is the, as you can see, the replication of the, the lyre we have at the British Museum in Room G56. Now, uh, uh, this instrument was unearthed by, not this one, the one in G6 was unearthed by Woolley. In the winter of 1929, and uh, for me, it constituted the best preserved item because it was covered in silver, and although the silver had been crushed uh, flat in the tombs, uh, the outlines were sufficient for making proper reconstructions. Uh, in, then the silver eye was transported to the British Museum after it had been covered with a layer of wax so that it could be lifted properly out of the ground. At the museum, the major task was to then melt the wax in order to reveal the silver, which had corroded enormously. Then in uh, uh, 59, uh, in 49, so in the summer of 49, an attempt was made at displaying to the public. And after the uprights had been filled with more wax, the instrument uh, was standing up on a pedestal. And there was a very, very heated summer of uh, 49, and uh, uh, one day the wax simply melted and the instrument collapsed in uh, in front of the public being there looking at it. So after it collapsed in, in 49, the instrument was taken off public display and it took ages, it took on to until nineteen sixty-nine because the before the instrument could be reconstructed. But then what happened? It was the late sixties and the the principle of conservation of items in the museum was to make them look very much like they were in the in their lifetime. And this was to the detriment of organology, which was a science. Nobody had heard at the time. So a lot of the essential uh, bits were destroyed uh, and will never be uh, um, recovered. However, the uh, documentation at the museum was sufficiently uh, important for me to make serious uh, um, uh, researches with regard to proper organological reconstruction. So this is what happened. We first discovered that the soundboard had been made of silver and it was not simply silver which covered a soundboard. The soundboard indeed was silver, and how do we know this? It's because there was only a small amount of dust between the two parts of the soundboard, and therefore we are absolutely certain that the silver was not simply glued to a wooden basis. Now, we have here the soundboard, we have here the uprights, this is the yoke, these are the tuning levers, the strings, of course, and the bridge. Now, we're absolutely certain that this was the lens of the strings, the reason being that the instrument was flat on its side in the tomb, and nothing had been disturbed. We could even find traces of the string on the ground where it had been resting. Uh, as a matter of fact, the instrument was resting on the side of the bridge, and this was very useful because it allowed the strings to leave their impression onto the silver plate, so we knew exactly what was the fan angle. Therefore, what would have been the length of the strings? They average about 80 centimeters, with the longest being about 83 centimeters, and the shortest about 72. This was important as it helped us to define what would have been the tension and the mass of each, taking into account that mostly these would have been uh, a gut from pigs which had been twisted raw and then allowed to dry. There was another important uh, thing to discover, is that the tuning levers that we have at the museum are pierced in two places, and I was always wondering why they had been, and the answer is simple. Whereas in the Ethiopian Begana and uh, early uh, light types of Africa, the tuning is mainly done by rotating the levers around the yoke, the Sumerans had progressed in this, that the levers simply had to be turned around like ordinary tuning pegs, and this was indeed an innovation in the history of making instruments.